If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We think of the Victorian period as a period of great uh, cruelty, oppression, uh, savagery, blinkeredness. It wasn't. That was Simon Heffer discussing Victorian Britain. They went to New England, both because it offered them religious toleration or degree of religious freedom they weren't getting in old England, but also because they could flog stuff to the colonists. And that was Adrian Tinniswood talking to us about a remarkable 17th century family. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. Plus we have digital editions available for the iPad, for the Kindle, for the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. And for this coming weekend only, we're holding a special sale. You can get any back issue of BBC History magazine from 2013 for just 99 pence, or the equivalent in your currency, on the iPad, iPhone, Kindle Fire or Google Play. So if you'd like to read more about Anne Boleyn, the Second World War, Henry VIII, Roman Britain and much, much more, then don't forget to look for BBC History magazine at the newsstand or app store this weekend. The offer runs until the 2nd of December. The Victorian era was one of rapid change, transforming almost all areas of British society. 
In his latest book, historian and columnist Simon Heffer explores the developments in education, politics, religion and science during this period. He spoke to our books editor, Matt Elton, about some of the key figures of this era and what he thinks the Victorians could teach 21st century Britain. So what impression do we get of what Britain was like for the average person before 1838? Well, things were... The, 18, the late 1830s saw a big downturn in the fortunes of the country. We had become a big exporter, particularly of cotton and woolen goods, uh, to America. And the American economy had a downturn in the late 1830s. And that meant that by about 1840, an awful lot of people who worked in the cotton industry in Lancashire, all the woolen industry in uh, West Yorkshire, or indeed the cloth industry in, in central Scotland, uh, had lost their jobs. And many of them were second-generation immigrants from the countryside. Uh, And when their families, uh, their grandparents, worked on the land, there was never a a downturn because there was always a demand for food. Uh, And so although agricultural life was very hard, it was regular. It did guarantee an income, and it normally guaranteed a roof over your head because of the tied cottage. Um, When the cloth or the cotton industry had a downturn, uh, it had a very serious downturn, and owners just laid people off. So they were thrown on the mercy of the poor law, which had come in 1834, and which meant if you couldn't afford to feed yourself or your children, you were split up and went into the workhouse. So... um, by early by the early 1840s there's serious unrest in the industrial areas of this country the great change that's happened since about 1800 is that there's been this enormous immigration uh into the uh, the industrial towns by 1850 you've got more than half the british population which by then is about 25 million living in uh towns rather than in the countryside so this puts a really severe burden on the poor law and it also encourages quite a lot of people to think that they should maybe be rioting and protesting about it. That, in turn, panics the government. And the government of Robert Peel uh, in 1841-42 is faced with quite serious rioting uh, and what they consider to be the threat of revolution. Hmm. I mean, we've talked there about how people were moving into towns and cities. To what extent was Britain still, um, in some sense, kind of culturally medieval, despite this shift? Well... Very few people had any say in how the country was run. That's the most medieval aspect of England in the 1840s. Uh, Only big landowners and uh, people who owned property in towns had the vote. Uh, So most people, I'd say 80% of people, because remember no women at all had the vote, didn't have a say. Uh, and many people didn't have any individual rights. Uh, children had very few rights. In, indeed, hardly any women had virtually no rights at all. Women were the property of their husbands. And so it was a society that was controlled by a very small group of quite prosperous men who had the vote, who could do what they liked, really. And everybody else had to dance to their tune. Um, although we had a queen, we had a female head of state, she was the only woman in the country who had any serious civil or legal rights. Uh, I mean, a man could beat his wife as much as he liked, and the, 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 unless he actually killed her, the state wouldn't tend to intervene. Children were, as young as the age of six, were working down coal mines uh, and had no guarantee of an education. Uh, Pregnant women, young girls, uh, would work, uh, as the accounts of the time describe, half-naked down coal mines. It was a pretty horrible life for most people. Hmm. And so out of this, what led to the emergence of the Victorian mind, if you like? 
Well, it, there was a great upsurge in evangelical Christianity in the 1830s and 1840s, and that tended to make people feel um, guilty uh, or certainly more concerned about the plight of those less fortunate than themselves. And it encouraged a great wave of philanthropy. And among those who didn't have the money to be philanthropic, it encouraged a great wave of trying to improve conditions through the political process for those who are at the bottom of the heap. Another big change in the 1840s was the repeal of the Corn Laws. Um, the Corn Laws were brought in uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, or at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in the 1810s, uh, to try and guarantee an income for landowners. Uh, they stopped cheap corn being imported by imposing tariffs on it. And it meant that if you were a big landowner uh, in England, the, the price of what you were producing was guaranteed to remain high. And this was passed by Lord Liverpool's Tory government to protect Tory landowners. And um, by the 1840s, this meant that many people couldn't afford to eat properly. You know, in this time of great financial stringency in the early 1840s, when um, factories and mills are closing down and laying people off, a lot of people just can't afford to eat. And you know, there are cases, cases of near starvation in many parts of the country. It's made even worse by 1845 by the Irish potato famine, um, which uh, causes does generally cause starvation in Ireland. And Robert Peel, who is still Prime Minister, is, is eventually convinced by Gladstone, among others, uh, in his own party, that he must repeal the Corn Laws. Now, this causes tremendous furore in the Tory party because they feel that the Tory Prime Minister is knifing them in the back. Um, however, fearing revolution, fearing a complete uprising of people who literally can't afford to feed themselves, and with the Anti-Corn Law League, which is run by um, Cobden and Bright, um, really barnstorming the country in public meetings, Peel uh, gets enough Tories on his side to get in bed with the Liberal Party or the Whig Party, and they repeal the Corn Laws. Now, when that happens... Um, there's an enormous change in the um, mentality or, or the attitude of the, the British public. Suddenly, food isn't so expensive, but also it sets an example about free trade. And Britain suddenly, over quite a short period, within five or six years, becomes a big exporting nation. So more and more people are going back into work. More and more people are becoming lower middle class and then middle class. People are, are able to be aspirant. They're able to look to, to improve their lives and to improve their families' lives. And the, the, the whole complexion of the country begins to change. By the late 1850s, British society had become so prosperous towards the lower ends that there were enormous demands for the vote by um, working men, by men who were generally artisans but had skills that were very important to society. They were tailors, they made leather goods, um, they were master bakers, they were uh, builders, they were people who had skills that society depended on uh, for its progress and advancement. And they were constantly being told that uh, they weren't educated enough to have the vote and they got very angry about this and the political leaders of the time who were Palmerston, the Whig Prime Minister and Lord Derby who was the leader of the opposition for the Tory party absolutely agreed that uh, it would be frightful to give working people the vote because it would mean that their their class, the aristocracy no longer ran Britain um, however when Palmerston died in the autumn of 1865 and was replaced by uh, Lord Russell as Prime Minister, with Gladstone leading for him in the House of Commons, uh, the Liberals decided that they really had to make an advance on reform and brought in uh, a Reform Act, a Reform Bill, uh, that was debated in Parliament in the spring of 1866, 
the Tories, together with some uh, Whig reactionaries led by Robert Lowe, just managed to defeat Gladstone in the spring of 1866, and Gladstone resigned, uh, and a Tory government came in. This caused huge upheaval in the country. Uh, there wasn't a general election. The Tories simply came in because they could command a parliamentary majority at the time. And the, uh, the the general public, particularly the working men, were utterly outraged. The reform movement started to organise great meetings all over the country. And in the uh, in the in late July 1866, there was a, there was a riot in Hyde Park, where the railings were pulled down, the flowerbeds were trampled on, and uh, one person was killed. And this completely panicked the Tory government. And Disraeli, who was uh, leading in the House of Commons uh, for Lord Derby in the House of Lords, and uh, who was trying to put together and mastermind um, a, a plan about reform, uh, started to bring in uh, or suggest reform measures. And although his own party had been deeply opposed to what Gladstone did, they were so terrified of revolution breaking out that eventually they went along with it. And the, the conservative government of Derby and Disraeli in 1867, ended up passing a reform act that was infinitely broader and enfranchised infinitely more men um, than Gladstone had wanted to do. Uh, and so they overcame their fears that you'd have this uneducated uh, workforce who would be voting. Um, and they avoided revolution. And then the catch-up began of trying to educate working-class people, uh, mainly at school, but also through working men's associations, to allow them to have the understanding of politics and to become more politically responsible. So how important was education in the spread of what became the Victorian kind of thinking? Education was enormously important uh, because it enlightened people. It made more people realise not just that they um, should be equipped to take a part in running society. But it made them realize uh, that society worked better through democracy and through the spread of civilization than through revolution and violence and uprising. You must remember that until about 1850, there were quite a lot of people alive in Britain who remembered the French Revolution, which had happened 60 years earlier. And, of, of course, they, they remembered the, the bloodshed, the violence, uh, the terror in France. And it was a very strong example for Britain not to want to follow. Um, education also became more utilitarian. You know, people who are educated or who consider themselves educated until about 1860 were people who could read Latin and Greek. And by 1860, with education spreading through uh, industrial schools, if you like, further um, further down the, uh, the down society, um, people were being taught maths. They were being taught English. They were being taught history. They were being they were being taught basic skills that would enable them to prosper in society and to make a contribution to society. And so you had uh, also girls being educated. Uh, there'd been a prejudice in families that had the money to educate their children, that it was a waste of money educating girls because all girls were going to do was you know, be housewives and preside over their domestic staff and do some sewing. By the 1840s, late 1840s, early 1850s, colleges are being set up for women. By the 1850s and 60s, schools are being set up for girls. They're no longer just being taught at home by governesses. Um, by the 1870s, you've got uh, women like uh, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson and Sophia Jex Blake trying to break into the medical profession. Uh, the teaching profession by the 1870s, 1880s is largely female. Uh, and so women are making a bigger and bigger contribution to the shaping of society uh, through education. And 
men are no longer just men who are, are not from very prosperous families are no longer just confined to doing uh uh, physical jobs, uh, physical labour, uh, or, or even jobs where they learn artisan skills through apprenticeships. Because they can read and write, uh, they're allowed to do more clerical jobs. And once they start doing office jobs, they start moving up the chain in, in offices and in businesses. And so by the end of the 19th century, you've got people from quite humble backgrounds who are holding quite responsible positions in white-collar jobs. And that's all because of education. Uh, becoming more widespread during the, the, the middle and late 19th century. Hmm. I mean, a, a theme of the book is that there's individuals who stand out as being particularly important in fields across society. Are there any educators that stand out to you as being particularly important? Well, yes. I mean, calling him an educator is perhaps a, a slight misnomer, but Matthew Arnold, who was a, the great Victorian critic, earned his living not by writing books about uh, society, as he did so brilliantly, but by being the chief, by being a chief school inspector. And he travelled the length and breadth of Britain, and he attempted to ensure that uh, children from very humble backgrounds got a broad and useful education, not just a utilitarian one, but one that would, as he put it, bring sweetness and light into their lives and make them understand the importance of culture and he's one of the most important educational figures his inspiration came from his father uh, Thomas Arnold who was headmaster of rugby Thomas Arnold only lived five years into the Victorian era he died in 1842 uh, quite young but he had a massive impact, not just on um, the public school system, because there were many of his pupils and colleagues from rugby school that went out to become teachers and head teachers uh, all over the British public school system. But the grammar school system and later on the elementary school system tried to emulate um, Arnold's methods and Arnold's ideals about providing a Christian and civilized education to as many people as possible. So the Arnold family uh, were very important. But there's also people like T.H. Huxley, the, the scientist, who was a great ally of Charles Darwin's. As well as being a very brilliant scientist, Huxley was also a great crusader for education, particularly education of girls. Uh, he sat on the London School Board when the London School Board was formed uh, in 1870 to try and uh, ensure the provision of really good schools for working-class children in London. That act, of course, uh, in 1870 that uh, introduced school places for everybody reminds us that one of the most important uh, influences on in education was W.E. Forster, the, uh, the the minister at the Privy Council who was in charge of uh, pushing that act through, who, you know, un under Gladstone's inspiration, ensured that there was a school place available for every working class child in the country. And uh, so these are people who really changed the fundamentals of society by taking a largely uneducated and not very literate and not very numerate people and turning them over a period of about 20 years into a very literate and very numerate people. Mm. I mean, there are so many figures here in this book who had such a great impact. Are there any particular heroes of yours that you could single out possibly as being particularly important? Well, t for my money, the most important figure of the entire mid-19th century is Gladstone, because he had a finger in every pie. He was instrumental as a young man, as a Tory, before he moved to the Liberal Party. He was instrumental in persuading Peel to, re uh, to repeal the Corn Laws, which, as I say, is the most important economic event of the 19th century. He was one of the members of the Royal on the Royal Commission of the Great Exhibition, which was something that, in 1851, projected Britain and British power and British progress to the rest 
rest of the world. He was a magnificent Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1850s. He didn't only in the 1850s try and organize uh, an, an economic system that maximized British prosperity. He also, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, for example, um, introduced a competitive examination into the civil service to ensure that we no longer had a civil service that was based on you know, who your father was uh, and whether he could afford to buy you a place in the government uh, or whether you knew the right people, but uh, a civil service that was based on meritocratic entry. Um, when he became prime minister, he liberalized the old universities, which until 1871 or 72 were simply seminaries for people who wanted to become Anglican priests. Uh, you weren't allowed to take a higher degree or become a fellow of a college um, in, in Oxford or Cambridge if you were anything other than Anglican. So if you were a, 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 a dissenter, if you were a Roman Catholic, if you were a Jew, you could forget it. And uh, he, he did away with that in order to broaden the, the range of people who could reach elite positions in elite universities. Um, he ensured that the army was reformed again until 1870 or, uh, or 1872. If you wanted to become an officer in the army, you had to buy your commission from an officer who was retiring. You had to go and basically buy his livelihood from him in the way that you buy a business. And this was insane because people of no military uh, or strategic ability whatsoever were able to become very senior officers in the British army. This is why the charge of the Light Brigade happened. You had people who were complete incompetence but who had enormous amounts of money, were able to buy themselves colonelcies uh, and, 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 and command regiments. And Gladstone said, this is, this is mad. You know, we, we're, a, we're a global power. We've got an empire that's growing that we have to defend. And we're relying on very second-rate people to do it. So he introduced meritocracy into the army. Um, and, of course, he introduced, as I say, he got forced to introduce the Education Act. So this is, this is a man who whose tentacles reached into every part of society. Uh, and he was an incredibly learned man, Gladstone. He spoke for five or six languages. He was fluent in French, Italian, German, Latin, and Greek. Uh, and he was also a deeply Christian man. He, um, as, as everyone knows, he went out and rescued prostitutes. He, he didn't take them home for his own delectation. He took them home to sit in his kitchen in Carlton House Terrace in London with Mrs. Gladstone. And they, were, and they would persuade these women that there was a better way of living their lives than selling themselves to men. And he did all he could in, you know, in charitable terms to get these women into, into jobs. So he, he was a man of titanic energy, uh, but a man who, who really was determined to make Britain into a civilized modern country. And of course, you know, even in his long lifetime, he didn't achieve that, but he laid many of the foundations for the society that we take for granted today. So he's my ultimate Victorian hero. I mean, it's interesting that you've chosen there a political figure and also touched on the whole religious aspect. To what extent do you think those kind of institutions lagged behind the work of figures within them or outside of them? I think the church took quite a long time to catch up with uh, the needs of society, but when, <coughs> sorry, uh, but when the church realised um, just how bad things were and how it had perhaps neglected its Christian duties, certainly under the Hanoverians. Um, it, it engaged very fully with doing good works among the poor. The Church of England until, I said, well, between about 1750 and 1820 was a pretty corrupt and diseased organization. Again, it was one where uh, the younger sons of rather dissipated aristocrats ended up as clergymen. Uh, they lived off Queen Anne's bounty, which was an enormous endowment that the church had. They lived in very fine rectories, which you still see all over this country today, but now lived in by people who aren't in the church. And they had very nice lives indeed, but they didn't 
didn't do that much for the for, for the poor. And of course, when the population displaced from the from from the countryside to towns, many of these towns only had a medieval church. It suddenly had tens of thousands of people living in them. And the church, with the help of the state, between 1818 and 1824, I think it was, started to build churches. And of course, later than that, if you go into any uh, British town, you'll see two or three Victorian churches that were built by the Church of England with the help of state money to try and encourage this newly displaced population that lived in towns to go and become Christian uh, and not to become uh, detached from the teachings or the or, or the spirituality of the church. So the church took it all quite seriously. Po politicians were much slower off the mark. Politicians were elected by definition on a very small franchise of people who had big vested interests to protect. You know, if you're, uh, there's no secret ballot either. So if you're a landowner and you've got tenant farmers who are rich enough to have the vote uh, after 1832, you, you, you go and watch them vote. And if they don't vote for you, you tend to evict them from their houses. So the uh, they do tend to vote for you. And, and therefore, the landed interest is protected. And it's not until 1867 that the landed interest is finally broken in this country, that the industrial interest, the middle class interest, and then the working class interest actually have a say in how we are run. So it takes a very long time for the political class to catch up to the realities of a, a more educated, a more politically savvy and a more prosperous population that requires not just the vote, but requires the vote because it wants a say in society. But they get there eventually. I mean, going back to the idea of the factors that cause this rapid shift, is it correct to say that technology was the single most important factor? Technology was certainly incredibly important. Now, I'm thinking particularly of the railways, uh, which made the country a much smaller place. It meant that people could, well, you invented the commuter. You know, London began to grow because people could, uh, who had always walked to work and had to live in rookeries in the city of London to walk to work in the city of London. People could live five or ten miles away and get a train that took them 15 minutes and they could get to the, to the centre of London. This had never happened before. Uh, and this was true of many other industrial towns. So there's technology was important. Many of the technological advances that had made Britain rich had been made before the Industrial Revolution, uh, sorry, at, at the Industrial Revolution, before the Victorian period. But it's it's really communications that change in the Victorian period, and they, they encourage mobility of labor, which encourages more prosperity, which makes it easier for people to set up uh, factories and, and businesses in other parts of, uh, of the country that had previously had no factories or businesses because they couldn't get people there very easily and couldn't export their goods very easily. Um, you've also got... Uh, the movement of goods, which is very important. You know, if you lived in somewhere like Bedfordshire until about 1850, you probably never eaten fresh fish because the coast was too far away. By the time the fish got to you from the coast, it had gone off. Um, so the, the, the quality of life because of, of, the, of the, the movement of goods changed. Uh, we had the penny post in 1840, which coincided with the arrival of some of the railways. Uh, you, people could sit in Edinburgh by about 1848 and write a letter and the next day it would be in London. So you had great immediacy of communications in a country that had often taken days to get the simplest message from one end of it to the other. And that was very important, not just in terms of commerce, but also in terms of politics, because it meant political ideas travelled much more quickly. Um, you had, the, uh, you had the stamp duty on newspapers lifted in 1855, which meant that more people read the press, and that too was a big commercial and political uh, 
um, factor. Uh, the Daily Telegraph was invented in 1855. The Times circulation goes up once not everybody has to pay tax on it. And that means the transmission of ideas uh, and the transmission of knowledge uh, becomes much, much greater. And I think it's those that sense of communication that's very important. It's it's not really until after my book finishes in 1880 with Gladstone becoming Prime Minister for the second time, it's not really until after that that the really important inventions, the motor car, the telephone, uh, the electric light bulb, uh, become uh, ubiquitous in, in, in England. And it's those three inventions particularly that change the nature of society uh, between 1880 and the Great War. I mean, we've talked about a fair number of factors there. Are there any others that you think have been previously neglected um, in the development of modern Britain? One of the most important things, and it's a subset of, of politics, is this expansion of women's rights. And, uh, I mean, one can't overstate how really uh, shabbily treated women were. A woman couldn't get divorced in this country until 1858. It doesn't matter whether her husband beat her or stole all her money uh, or, or, or kept her children from her. A woman could not get divorced except by a separate act of parliament, which was enormously embarrassing it was it usually put the burden of proof on the woman uh, and it was hideously expensive in 1857 there were three divorces in britain that was the year that the law was passed to uh, allow divorce courts to be set up and to allow women to have the right to divorce their husbands in 1858 there were 300 divorces um Women who uh, had inherited large amounts of money from their fathers could uh, have complete control of that money until they got married. The minute they got married, it became their husband's money. Their husband could do what he liked with it. He could basically kick his wife out onto the street and spend all her money. Um, they, of course, didn't have the vote. They, of course, didn't have education for reasons I said earlier. Uh, and to me, the, the really great advance of the Victorian period is that women begin to become proper citizens of this country. They're allowed to have uh, their own money. They're allowed to determine their own future. They have a horrible marriage. Uh, they're allowed to be educated, not just at school, but at university. And they, and they begin to be allowed to enter important professions. Teaching, as I say, depends upon them by the 1880s. By that stage, they're also slowly becoming doctors. In the early 20th century, they become lawyers. Uh, they slowly... They, they begin that progress that goes towards getting the vote in 1918 and over the next 60 years getting full equality with men. But it starts in the, in the, in the Victorian period and to me that's the most important social change uh, that the Victorians uh, introduce. Do you think the Victorian period has any lessons to teach us in modern Britain? Yes, it does. The biggest lesson it has is that you should trust individuals uh, and that the the role of the state should be to enable individuals to do great things and not to a provider. The state has to be an enabler. There was very little state money spent in the Victorian period. Most of the work that governments did was to enable local authorities or individual philanthropists or individual businesses to uh, expand and to do things and to provide for the people. And um, it was a great lesson in localism. It was a great lesson in taking local communities and saying, if you haven't got good mains drainage, we'll pass an act of parliament that will enable you to raise the money locally to build it. Um, we will enable you to build museums and art galleries. We'll enable you to um, pull down all your grotty local housing and build new houses. Uh, so we'll bypass the, the normal planning procedures. And um, that is the great lesson, I think, that, uh, that, 
today needs to learn that if the, the state can be suffocating, the bureaucracy of the state can be suffocating, and you can actually run a very powerful and efficient state on very few people. Uh, the Victorians ran an empire on about 20,000 civil servants, and we now run uh, what in many respects seems to be a third world country on about 500,000. I'm not sure what's gone wrong there. In what ways do you hope through this book to change people's perception of the Victorian period and its people? Well, I think we, because we've read so much Charles Dickens, and I say I think he, Dickens is our great uh, mirror uh, on Victorian England. Uh, we think of the Victorian period as a period of great uh, cruelty, oppression, uh, savagery, blinkeredness. It wasn't. Um, life was very hard for a lot of people, but there equally there was a very very large class of people out there who had money and who had energy and who had determination and will who made things better uh, who were determined to improve the standards of housing the standards of education the standards of healthcare, standards of sanitation uh, they were determined to make britain a better place they were determined to give more rights to children more rights to women more rights to men and in the period 1838 when the Chartists began and 1880 when Gladstone became Prime Minister for the second time many of those things were either completely achieved or they were they were they were begun and uh, that I think is the great monument to the Victorians that sense of progress and if we see them as a slightly stuffy stiff people we are making an enormous mistake they were incredibly open-minded and they really wanted to change the country and change it for the better and i don't think there's ever been a period of such radical change and progress as there was between about 1840 and 1880 that was simon heffer simon's book high minds the victorians and the birth of modern britain is out now published by random house and you can read a review of it in our December issue, which is also out now and contains articles on Alfred the Great, the Plantagenets, JFK and the Industrial Revolution. You can get hold of our December issue in all good news agents and, of course, digitally. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Before our next interview, it's time for our History News Roundup with our web editor, Emma McFarnan. A High Court battle over where the remains of Rich III should be buried has been put on hold. The judicial review, brought by a group of Richard III's distant relatives who are campaigning to see the former king reburied in York, was adjourned after the court agreed to allow Leicester City Council to make representations as a party. The hearing is not expected to take place until next year. Meanwhile, a Victorian oil painting depicting Richard III's last stand at the Battle of Bosworth has gone on display in Leicester. The painting, by William Bass, hasn't been seen in public for several years. In other news, the mystery surrounding an ancient Egyptian statue that was filmed rotating inside its glass case at Manchester Museum has been solved. A vibrations expert placed a sensor under the 10-inch high statue, which revealed traffic and footfall vibrations at busy times of the day caused the statue to rotate. Meanwhile, the results of a £45 million renovation of the oldest parts of the Tate Gallery have been revealed. You can now enter the gallery by walking up its millbank-facing steps, and there is a new cafe. A famous mural by Rex Whistler in the restaurant that bears his name has also been restored. Thanks for that, Emma. And for more history news, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. Historian and author Adrian Tinniswood's latest book, The Rainborers, explores the role that this family played in 17th century political and military affairs on both sides of the Atlantic. Matt Elton caught up with Adrian recently to find out more about this story, and he started by asking him why he had decided to write about this particular family. I think the, the the great thing about the Rainborough family is that they 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 sprawl, they pop up everywhere. You know, they they um, they're, they're very committed, and that's that interested me as well. That they're politically very committed, they're religiously very committed, but also they they have this these fascinating. Um, global lives you know at a time when you know the old the received wisdom used to tell us that nobody moved anywhere in the 17th century you know the mobility was was you know more almost confined from moving from one village to another and these guys were you know helped to found a, a near global empire certainly in the western world mm. it's a fantastic story um which of course the book tells um what was their situation at the start of the 17th century where do we join them we, we we join them in Wapping. They they the the, the family and, and to be honest, Matt, it's more of a clan than a family. It's a tribe. There's a there's a there's a whole network of Rainboroughs and cousins and in-laws that all live and operate in and around Wapping and Limehouse and Whitechapel. And they're sailors. If they're not sailors, they're shipwrights. If they're not shipwrights, they're they're merchant mariners. You know, they they they're the kind of people that that made the port of London what it is. And they're the kind of people that, 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 in a sense, made England the great mercantile power it became in the 17th century. The book starts by saying that the family uh, played a part in a huge range of events, sometimes on the edge, sometimes in the centre. What sort of events you know, were they part of? I suppose the, the the two major sort of sort of uh, um, events in the 17th century that the Rainbows played a big part in. One was the Great Migration. I mean, they, the 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 Rainbow family helped to found modern America uh, um, in the 1630s and early 1640s. And the second great event, of course, is the English Revolution. 
Um, Rainboroughs played prominent parts in the English Civil War on Parliament's side. They were all Puritans. They're all very committed, very hardline Puritans. And they also played a part in trying to shape the peace. The, the most famous of the Rainbows, the one, the, the, the Rainborough that, that most 17th century um, historians have heard of is Thomas Rainborough, who, who gave that fantastic speech at Putney in the, the Army Council debates when he, he argued for universal male suffrage at a time when nobody had done that. You know, nobody in the world had done that. And he's the one who said, look, my soldiers have fought for a new society, you've got to give them a say. Never mind, they don't own property. They must have a vote in the running of the country. So that, I mean, that's, that's the crucial point, I think. That's the kind of culmination of the, the Rainborough's um, uh, achievements in the 17th century. Hmm. Do you think that the family um, was more involved in these events than other notable families of the same sort of period? Yes, I do. And I think that uh, what what initially interested me about them, because obviously I, I knew about Thomas and I knew about the, his, his role in the Putney debates when I started, but um, the thing that intrigued me was that there was a cross-fertilization of ideas between New England and Old England. And the Rainboroughs, well, not sort of, you know, that they weren't the only family moving back and forth. The fact is that they did move back and forth. They saw what religion, they saw that you could build a city upon a hill in New England. Well, then you could build it in Old England as well. So some of the ideas about individual liberty, personal freedom, religious toleration that they'd experienced to, a, um, to an extent in New England, they transported back to, they imported back to Old England. It's really interesting. And we've touched a couple of times there about New England. What part did they play in establishing, uh, you know, a life over there? They, they, there were at least three, possibly four of the Rainborough family, and in fact about another half dozen of their cousins and in-laws, moved over to Massachusetts a few years after the, the founding of the, um, the Massachusetts Bay, Bay Colony in 1630. In fact, one of the Rainboroughs, uh, Martha Rainborough, married John Winthrop, the, governor, the famous governor of, of, uh, um, of Massachusetts. Another Rainborough daughter, another Rainborough, Martha's sister, married John Winthrop's son, Stephen Winthrop. Uh, it's at this point we probably need some kind of diagram to work out exactly exactly who's related to who if, if martha's married to dad and sister judith is married to son i'm not quite sure what that makes them to each other but it's something <laughs> kind of weird it's definitely mm. something weird fantastic i mean you've touched there on on you know the role of women um is it right to say that the women in this family were more involved than in other families not necessarily, and that's a part that I found particularly hard. I mean, it's a, it's it's a banal thing to say that that's you know that history is written by men or was written by men, and that um, women tend to be written out of history. I was I got very frustrated when writing about the Rainboroughs that one can just pick up glimpses about the women you get the feeling all the way along that they're very powerful women so for example martha rainbow i've just been talking about um when her first husband died and she was about to marry john winthrop um she i mean she and her her relations organize a prenuptial agreement so that john winthrop can't get his hands on 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 her money i mean she's quite a she's quite a canny woman but there are only fragmentary references there are no letters from martha rainborough or from judith her sister no letters at all all we see is second is secondary references in the correspondence of others and i do find that very annoying <laughs> mm, yes i can see that i mean is it hard to then kind of you know place their kind of role in the story 
Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're working all the time with, with a lot of the women. You're working from circumstantial evidence. You're working from, from context. Uh, you know, th- there are clear, um, clear events that we know about. Um, uh, tragically, I suppose, the most, um, the, 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 the most awful event is the fact that Martha Rainborough all the family. She's the one who stayed in Massachusetts. She made a life for herself there. And yet it became too much for her. Um, after 30 years, nearly 30 years in Massachusetts, she committed suicide. She took rat's pain. She died. Um, so we do have definite, you know, clear events, but we don't have the detail. We don't have the thinking. We don't have their voice in the way that we have the male rainbow, male rainbow's voices. Mm. So how does a family that started off the century being fairly ordinary, I suppose, um, get to a position where it was able to crisscross the Atlantic in this way? I, it's, it's where they were born and, and, and the jobs they had, I think. I mean, one of the things that came as such a shock to me, to be honest with you, is the, the, the way that families like the Rainbows and their kin moved back and forth across the Atlantic. I mean, you know, they, they, they knew the Eastern Mediterranean, because initially they were they were they were um, uh, trading in the Levant, so they're moving back. You know, they're moving through the through the Med regularly, and then they start to see the business opportunities that are available in um, in Massachusetts, and they move back and forth between those two um, between those two worlds, if you like, between New England and Old, quite effortlessly, uh, and that that's that's the astonishing thing I think that they they could they regarded the world as their oyster. Hmm. I mean, that's that's a huge journey to take. Um, do we get a sense of um, why they were doing it? Was it profit they were hoping to make or was it religion? What kind of drove them to be so so adventurous? That's another, that's another very interesting point there, Matt, because I don't think to families like the Rainbows, to, to entrepreneurial, you know, sort of, sort of capitalists, if you like, merchants who were also Puritans, I don't think there was any contradiction. They were motivated by religion. They were very, as I said, they were very committed um, pro, um, extreme Protestants. They were, they were Puritans. But at the same time, they had an eye for, for profit. I mean, they went to New England, both because it offered them religious toleration or degree of religious freedom they weren't getting in old england but also because they could flog stuff to the colonists you know (laughs) and and so how did their experiences in the new world how did that affect their lives back in this country and also how did it affect this country well i think in the in the 1630s and into the early 1640s you see the 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 kind of the young government of Massachusetts starting to move towards not a bill of rights, but certainly statements of, of, of liberty and individual freedom. So, for example, I mean, wife beating was was outlawed, um, as was cruelty to animals, for heaven's sake, in, 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 in New England, the 1640s. It wasn't in old England. Um, but more importantly, I think they saw that they could worship in their own way, free from the strictures of the Anglican Church and the bishops. They saw that they could, they could see how um, community mattered, and and you could play a role yourself. Individuals could play a role in the community without the kind of God-given hierarchies that old England still clung to. And it was that sense of freedom that they took back to old England. That sense of being able to build a new world, but build it in old England. Mm. So how do they go about doing that? How do they shape life, you know, here for other people as well, I suppose? 
Well, by going to war for a start, I mean, there's, there's no doubt at all that it was the outbreak of the Civil War in 1642 that brought many of the, the Rainbows and their clan back. Uh, they partly, of course, it's, it's, it's selfish. No, it's common sense. They had, they had gone halfway across the world. They'd gone to the Americas in search of um, a, a, a more kind of conducive and congenial climate, uh, you know, a, a political and religious climate. Well, they saw the possibility of having that climate back in back in England. So why not go home to, to what was familiar? You know, why why carve out a new life in the swamps and forests of Massachusetts when you can do it in Whitechapel and Wapping and Oxford <laughs> and, and Reading, you know, and Bristol? Yeah. Um, it was home because I think the other thing that came across to me very strongly when I was doing this book is that. Uh, um, that UK history and US history at this point are the same thing. You know, these people didn't consider themselves. The Rainbows weren't Americans. Even, even the, the, the Rainbows who lived in um, Massachusetts and New England for decades, they never considered themselves as Americans. They were English. Mm, okay. So what role did they play in the war? Um, it varied. Uh, the the um, Thomas Rainborough, who was uh, uh, one of um, Fairfax's great siege commanders, um, he had a prominent role uh, towards you know, in, in the new model army. His brother, William, younger brother, William Rainborough, was uh, a major in the new model army. Nehemiah Bourne, one of their cousins, was um, a major in the parliamentarian army and went on to become a senior figure in the Admiralty and a, a naval uh, commander in his own right. It's interesting that Nehemiah, who lived for 50 years after the English Civil War, he always called himself major. He always kept that rank. You know, that, that year or so he spent in, in England in the Civil War was a formative experience for him. There's a sense here that we get that they were good at being leaders, you know, people in his family. Is there a characteristic of the family that you think led to this? What made them such good leaders in terms of both maritime and military success? I, I think partly it's a conviction. You know, it's a conviction that they were doing the right thing. Now, of course, that's not that's not sort of exclusive to to the Rainbows or indeed to to, to that merchant mariner class. A, a lot of a lot of, I guess, a lot of royalists. I mean, my my book doesn't really deal with the royalist side in the Civil War. It, it deals with the, you know, the fragmentation and the different the different factions that were involved in the on Parliament's side. But certainly, there were lots of people um, acting out of a, a convic conviction that they were right. That that that's that they were doing, you know, they were doing God's word. I mean, I think Cromwell, you know, as with many people on that side, Cromwell talks about being God's instrument. And these people very definitely, the Rainbows, considered themselves to be God's instrument. It wasn't them fighting. It was God fighting through mm. them. Are there any characters that particularly stand out to you as being perhaps your favourites or that stand out as being particularly um, instrumental in this story? I don't. I mean, Thomas, uh, the the the, um, the the great siege commander and, and leveller leader, Thomas Rainbow, who I've mentioned, is the one that that obviously does stand out. I've got a bit of a soft spot for his brother William. William William Rainbow was more radical uh, even than his big brother Thomas, but um, he wasn't. He didn't have the opportunity to um, to lead in the same way that Thomas did. I mean, William Rainbow. My my book has as its jacket a, a, a rather graphic image of a severed head. Um, and that that severed head was actually William Rainborough's battle banner after the after the execution of Charles I in 1649. That's what William Rainborough carried, you know, carried with his regiment. And when um, uh, when the the Civil War was over and the 
the Leveller cause had been all but you know, all but destroyed by Cromwell and um, the forces of darkness, if you like. Uh, at that point, William Rainborough moved into the most astonishingly extreme um, religious politics. William became a ranter. And um, I've got to say, I've got a soft spot for him because, by golly, the, the ranters liked to party and he used to party along with them. So what sort of things did he get up to? Um, uh, well, it's kind of sex, drugs and rock and roll without the drugs and rock and roll, I suppose. It was it was um, the, the, the ranters are a curious sort of sect because they 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 believe there's no such thing as sin. Now, once you believe there's no such thing as sin as a as a as a, as a, a religious body, it means you can do more or less what you like. And they did. And there's a whole literature uh, of 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 um, uh, leaflets and, and tracks describing ranter activities and ranter sort of uh, group sex and drinking, uh, often with very graphic with 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 with, um, with lots of pictures because that's how they sold those pamphlets. <laughs> but um, they were they were always a minor group, but they were very very much on the edges of society. And in fact, William went too far. He was um, he was uh, prosecuted for uh, paying for the. Uh, publication of a rant tract, and he was banned from public office and had to, had to he retired to the country um, in the 1650s and in fact when 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 the restoration took um came about in 1660 william rainborough and a lot of the clan moved back to new england again they were they're still they're restless they're still searching for freedom they're searching for liberty of, of, of a kind mm. that's an interesting point actually we picked up at the start of the century where do we then find them at the end of the century yeah, we find them disappearing. In fact, they disappear. Thomas Rainborough, the 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 leveller leader, um, is assassinated in 1648. He doesn't make it to the end of the war. Um, he's assassinated by royalists. But um, the rest of the clan, they drift back and forth. They 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 find that there's no there's no place in England for them. They go to New England. Paradoxically, by the time they get back to New England in 1660 in the 1660s, New England is becoming increasingly repressive itself. You know the 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 the, 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 the great the great the brave new world, the great society that's been set up as a a, um, a, a symbol of religious freedom is finding that religious freedom is too dangerous. So um, Baptists and Anabaptists and Quakers are routinely being flogged or hanged or exiled. And you have the Rainbows still searching for some kind of hope, still searching for Jerusalem, for Canaan, for that land of milk and honey, and not finding it on either side of the Atlantic. They're a restless lot and they just disappear. They just disappear into history at the end of the century. To what extent then is their story a sad one? To what extent do they not succeed in their aims? They don't succeed. It's true. They don't succeed, and it it is a sad story. It, it's it's a story of striving, though. I mean, it's a story of 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 a um, as you say, an ordinary family that made themselves rather more than ordinary. That weren't content to sit around on the sidelines, but actually grasped both um, business opportunities and also political opportunities. They were an ordinary family that made themselves really quite extraordinary. What would you say the, th- the thing was that most surprised you? I think that takes us back to, a, to much earlier in our conversation. The thing that surprised me most was that people were moving back and forth across the Atlantic. When I started working on this book, I, 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 you know, I thought that rather like John Winthrop, rather like the, you know, the Mayflower, the Pilgrims, you actually got in a boat in Southampton or Bristol or, or London, you got off it in New England and you stayed put or you died. The idea that people could crisscross the Atlantic regularly, you know, in a in a very small ship, you know, they were they were going over once or twice a year, some of them, and doing it on a regular basis, 
is was quite a surprise to me. I hadn't realised how mobile um, certain sections of the population were in the mid-17th century. And what do you hope that readers will take away from this book? I hope readers will take away will will, will take away some of the 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 passion for the period for that mid 17th century period, which is I mean I'm biased because you know I would I would rather li- if they had antibiotics, Matt, if they had antibiotics and satellite TV, I would rather live in the mid of the 16th of the 17th century. It's the most phenomenal period. I hope people will get a sense of the fact that all things were possible. Some things didn't didn't work out, you know. Some some of the the great experiments failed, but there was a sense in the middle of the century there where all things were possible, where we could make we could we could build a better world. Do you think that sense is lost in the kind of later centuries? Then yes, I do, I do, I really do. I think that that um, institutions become more 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 hardened in many ways and become more rigid, uh, both political and and indeed paradoxically religious institutions. You just have a point round about 1635 to 1655 when anything goes, when all the rules are broken and men of, of conscience and principle actually feel that we can we can turn the world upside down. That's a cliche, isn't it? We can turn the world upside down. We can make a better world. That was Adrian Tinniswood. Adrian's book, The Rainbowers, is out now, published by Jonathan Cape. And that is almost all for this week's episode. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. And you can also keep in touch with us on social media as well. We're on Twitter at History Extra and we're on Facebook. You can like us at facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And as I mentioned before, do keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find news, blogs, image galleries, quizzes, features, and a whole lot more. And before I go, a quick reminder about our weekend digital sale that I mentioned earlier. Look out for BBC History magazine at the App Store or newsstand and get hold of a recent back issue for a very low price. Next week, we'll be talking about the legacy of the First World War with David Reynolds, and we'll be finding out about Mahatma Gandhi's formative years. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher.